Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week we are led in scripture by Pastor Ben Hartwig as he continues through his series in the book of Ephesians. During this sermon, we continue to learn about the unity we have as believers through Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 as Pastor Ben Hartwig delivers his sermon titled, Unity in Christ. You can be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, just a reminder, or if you are visiting with us um, that with Josh on vacation, um, we are going through Ephesians when you're with me. Um, And so we're back in Ephesians. It's been a little while, but um, we're back in Ephesians now. You might, uh, if if you recall... um, we actually, this uh, verse 1 through 10, we, uh, we did some time ago, so we kind of did that first before, and then we went through all of chapter 1, and so we are finding ourselves now at verse 11 is where we find ourselves, verse 11 through 18, and as we're doing this, we're hitting the big themes, bigger passages in Ephesians. You can take three words in Ephesians and preach um, you know, much on, on these, but we're just taking bigger themes uh, in Ephesians, and so we're going to take a large chunk of, uh, of Ephesians here in chapter 2 and verse 11, 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we are thankful for unity. We're thankful for unity in Christ. We're thankful for unity then in the gospel and Father in our church, in our church family, and in the church at large. Father, that cannot be found outside of your Son. Father, we do thank you. We praise you for Jesus. And as we look through your word in this passage, Father, that you would just give us help, give us understanding, help us to see. And Father, where there is Father, no salvation, I pray that you would convert. Lord, save that which is lost. Lord, use your word according to your kingdom's purpose and your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We know um, human nature, human nature is sinful. And human nature being sinful as it is, there's a lot of different facets to that, right? Part of that is to build barriers that will shut out other people for a million different reasons. And in New Testament times, in the times that this was written, one of the greatest barriers, for instance, was between slaves and those who were free, especially between slaves and their owners. Uh, Those who were free, uh, they looked down on the slaves, not really considering them to be a whole lot more than uh, animals, just tools that were to be used. Uh, Likewise, then the slaves would look upon their masters with uh, resentment. Now, as you would probably imagine in the early church then, one of the greatest challenges, now you really can't imagine that because we just don't have that, right? But if you think about that, one 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 of the hardest, most difficult challenges for them then in the church was to take a Christian slave owner and a Christian slave and then for them to be treating each other as spiritual equals. Also, you think of the Greeks, another example. If you're not a Greek, you are a barbarian, right? 
They were so proud of their culture, they thought they had a racial superiority. They're so brilliant, they're so wonderful. Everybody that is not a Greek is a barbarian. Um, to be very frank, Americans have developed such an attitude. If you're not an American, then you're obviously uh, have, you're less than superior. There was another challenge in the church, though, uh, with this Greek Christian, barbarian Christian, coming to the midst, right? So there was yet the other challenge. But now as Paul speaks to this, what we're getting at here is the Jews and Gentiles. This is our passage here specifically. The Jews and the Gentiles together. Now, again, there was a racism here that we really can't get a handle on. Yeah, we, we, we see racism, we, we get racism, we live in the midst of racism. Maybe um, racism is something that you've dealt with in your past uh, that uh, you have repented of, hopefully repented of. Um, you know, I, I just heard a story the other day. A, uh, a guy was um, uh, buying engineering services for his, uh, his city, and uh, he asked if the engineer that was going to be coming, uh, is he black? And the answer was, well, no. And well... We're not racist or anything. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Usually when a sentence begins with, I'm not racist or anything, that which follows is probably going to be racist. So we have that, right? But Jews and Gentiles was something that was, I mean, these, we're talking scum of the earth as far as the Gentiles were concerned. Less than people. Uh, they... Um, they had developed a superiority of that which we don't really get a, a good grasp of. Now, I can't get into the mind of God, but I would have to say the disunity, disunity among his people would, ha, would be one of the greatest things that would be a heartache to him, especially whenever it comes to not just disunity in, a, in the church at large, the big C church, but in his local body. We know um, the Spirit of God puts life the life of God into the soul of every person who trusts in Christ, unites that person with every other believer in the spiritual realm. We are united. If we took a trip to China and we uh, met with the underground church, we would automatically be united with those folks in Christ and automatically have a, a kindred with them in that e that, that supersedes that of, of culture and everything else. And in uh, the kingdom of Jesus, all barriers are to come down. In Christ, there aren't to be walls, there aren't to be classes, there aren't to be castes. Uh, for instance, I, I have friends who are, who are Indian. Uh, Shelley can probably explain this uh, uh, lots better than I can. Uh, but the caste system in India is, is so built into their worldview and culture that if people from different castes, you just, you just don't mingle with those folks. And stuff like that broken down. That's what missionaries in India have to deal with, right? They have to deal with, with that. No races, no distinctions. A glorious example that I found of, of how Christ will change a people, there was a story from a modern missionary in China. The, the church there that uh, the, this missionary had, had planted, it was composed of believers from various tribes who had been uh, just horrible enemies for generations. And the missionary that evening was holding a Lord's Supper service and he was just reflecting on what he was looking at and was, was, was overwhelmed and moved by what he saw. He was the chief of the Nagani tribe, uh, many other members of that tribe, and then the Singa tribe, the Tabunka tribes. Um, this is like biker gangs coming together for the Lord's Supper. These people had, they, they were singing together, they were praying together, they were participating in the Lord's Supper together. This shouldn't happen, right? This is like inner city gangs coming together for the Lord's Supper. These were tribes that had bragged about uh, the, 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 the women that they would rape of these other tribes, the men that they would brutally murder, the children that they would murder. And now, those who were once divided, now united by blood, but the blood of Christ and united by the blood of their common Savior, Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. This is the unity that Christ gives to his people. This is the unity that, by the way, we're commanded to maintain. We're to manifest this oneness outside of Christ. There is alienation. 
as Paul states, in Christ we have unity. And, and additionally, regardless of context, you know that unity just in general in your life, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have, whether this is unity in your family, unity in the workplace, unity here at church, unity is indeed wonderful. At the same time, in all of these situations, the more people that you get into a situation, the more uncanny ability that you might have for division. You look at the Godhead. Think of the Trinity. Cindy mentioned the Trinity and the children and, and uh, that, oh, all we're going to do is teach on the Trinity, right? That's no big deal. Um, but uh, you look at the Trinity. This is very simple. Why is there no division in the Trinity? Why is the Trinity not divided? Because there's no sin there, right? The Trinity is not divided. There is perfect unity. Perfect holiness produces perfect harmony. The only solution then for divisions among us is being the removal of sin, which, of course, Jesus accomplished by the shedding of His blood. So those who trust in the atoning work, they're freed from sin, now in their new nature, practically, permanently freed then from sin, their new bodies, then when they meet the Lord. So the cleansing value of the blood of Christ, it immediately washes away the penalty of sin and ultimately then washes, at that point, ultimately washes away its presence. So those words that we see and we talk about big themes and, and, and major things in Ephesians, those words in Christ, in Christ that we see often in Ephesians, wonderful words there that Paul brings to us in Christ, great foundational barrier of sin has been removed where? In Christ. And for that matter, every other barrier to be removed as well. So those who are one in Christ are one in each other, whether we realize that or not, or frankly, whether we like it or not. You come into a family, right? You didn't have any choice to be in that family when you're born into that family. That's not something that you said, I think I'll do this. You just, you're just there. And so whether you like it or not, you're there. Well, when the Lord saves you and brings you into a faith family, sometimes that can be difficult, right? Sometimes that can be hard. But what do you do? Do you run for your life? No. You work it out. That's what you do. Think of the Lord's table. The purpose of the Lord's table is to remind us of the sacrifice of our Lord that He made not only to bring Him to Himself, but also as to one another in communion for His purpose and for His glory. So we're, by removing our sin, we have something wonderful. That's the fact that Christ gives us peace with other. He gives us peace with each other and then, of course, access to God. This is where we are with the Prince of peace with God then and with his people. So apart from Christ, it's to be alienated. We recognize that the apostle here, he doesn't lose sight of his subject. He goes after this like Paul goes at everything. He goes after this with zeal. He exhorts the Ephesians to remember what their character had been before they were called. This is there to convince the readers they have absolutely no reason to be proud. He reminds them, this is not of man. You know, they, they reference circumcision, right? They reference this like this is something. Paul is telling them this is not something to make you prideful. This is not something to make you better than others. This is done by humans. What has happened in God, what has happened in Christ, that this is not of man, this is not human. You are to be resting with a, per a perfect satisfaction on Christ alone, not to be dreaming up any other aids to this, not to be dreaming up any other helps to this. You're in Christ, you're reconciled uh, to God, and it's not for us to look for anything additional. So he gets into the sign, the mark, Gentiles in the flesh. So the disunity within the Ephesian church was primarily between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. The Gentiles wanted the mark of God's people. I mean, this could be just as simple as I feel left out, right? I want the mark, the actual physical mark of God's people, as this is what distinguished them from others, what distinguished them physically from, from the pagans, was the mark, right? Was circumcision. And Jews, of course, what would they do? Well, they had this superiority and they would claim that without the mark, well, you aren't, well, at this point, well, you're kind of God's people, but you're not fully God's people without the mark. 
And so there's this idea that, well, this is what distinguishes us from pagans. This is what um, makes us not profane people, not polluted people anymore. Now we can be fully unpolluted, fully unprofane. Now, we, we look at a, a teaching from Paul here. It's kind of, it's his twofold here as he means it to the Ephesians. A circumcision in the flesh made by hands. This implies that the Jews are just, they're not to boast about the literal circumcision. Telling him, really, this doesn't matter. But also to the Ephesians, that they're to realize that physical uncircumcision was not a hindrance to spiritually, the spiritual circumcision of the heart circumcision of the heart by Christ. Now, we do recognize and we accept that God, in His sovereignty, He chose the nation of Israel to be a special people, right? We go back into the Old Testament and what do we see? That the nation of Israel was set apart to be a special people. Israel was called, specifically, to be a vessel through which the knowledge of God would be spread to the entire world. That was the idea, right? That was the, that's what was going on, that they were set aside to be spreading the word of God, spreading God to the entire world. Now, which is also what the New Testament church is to be doing, by the way, right? But unfortunately, they did not fulfill their calling. They did not fulfill that calling. They preferred to condemn the Gentiles rather than witness to them. Before Peter's vision... He had a pretty hateful attitude towards the Gentiles. Regardless of this, since the very beginning, it has always been God's plan. You can go back into the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 3. You can see that it has always been God's plan, right? To extend His love, His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy to every person, every people group on earth. Now, God made Israel distinct for a couple reasons. First, He wanted the world to see them, to notice them, and to realize, you know what? They don't act like other nations. They are different than other nations. Something is vastly different. And also, He wanted them to be so distinct that they would not be combined with other peoples. He gave them these strict dietary laws and clothing laws and ceremonial laws and marriage laws and all these laws that just flat out would not fit into another culture just wouldn't work. These distinctions were not there to make their lives difficult. That wasn't the purpose of it. It wasn't to make life difficult. It was intended to be a tool. And for lack of a better word, we'll just say it was intended to be a tool for witness. But Israel, what do they do? They perverted this. They continually perverted this into a source of pride, a source of isolation, a source of self-satisfaction, a source of self-glory. We are wonderful. You are not. And there's churches that do that, by the way. Um, there's churches that can do that. Why? And, of course, this is not on our list of things that we want to ever become, Right? But there's churches that do this. What happens? Well, hey, we got our theology right. We got everything right. And so this is who we are, and we're better than everybody else. And you know what? Everybody else doesn't get this, so they really can't be a part of us. And so you become isolated. You become self-righteous. You become better than everybody else. Become like these folks. The fact is that the New Testament church has a calling, right? We have a calling. We have a calling to be distinct from the world, to be different from the world, so different that the world notices this and sees this. The church, this church, we're not just talking about some random church. We are talking about our church, this church. We can face, we face the danger, right? We face the danger of proudly perverting special blessing into a means of pride, into a means of isolation, into a means of self-satisfaction instead of doing what we need to do in that humbly witnessing God's grace and goodness to uh, people in the world. You know, we can look out forward. You know, we'd like it to be sooner than later. We don't know right now, but we can look forward to a building program, right? We look forward to a building program and we think about something as insignificant as, you know, the, the big joke, right? The, the color of the carpet or the color of the paint on the walls. You know, we, we joke about that in churches that have fought about that, but I've actually seen that. And to argue and fight over something as insignificant as the color on the walls not only ruins 
your witness before an entire town, but it it just defames the name of Christ. It it it's 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 harmful to the church. It's harmful to, as the gospel is to be going out from our faces, right? We don't want to be involved in things like what they what they call worship wars. You know, the whole well, we got to have this kind of music or that kind of music. We need to be praising God that. Every week when you get in the car and you head here, you don't ever have to ask the question, I wonder if the music will be theologically sound today. Because you know it will be. We should be looking to push not our own desires, but for the desires of those around us, as long as, of course, they're biblical and sound, but looking for the desires of others, just like we should in our own family at home. The perfect example of the common Jewish attitude, of course, towards Gentiles that's often cited is Jonah, right? Jonah, God called him to preach to Nineveh. What's he do? He flees in the opposite direction. He runs the opposite way. And really, just to simplify that, it's because he hated them. And, and so he flees in the opposite direction because he knows that what, what could happen? If I go and preach the gospel to this people, what could happen is they could repent. God could have mercy on them. And then these people would, would become God's people. And when he had come to preach to them, witness their repentance what happens he becomes furious imagine that you know i've never met a guy like that personally you know i, I know a lot of preachers i've never known any of them to become furious when people repent especially a whole city right but the fact is, like Jonah, most Jews didn't want to share this gracious and loving God with anybody else. They wanted the Gentiles to remain in their heathen state. This is how far they had separated themselves, how they had isolated themselves, how they had got such a, an attitude of supremacy. And so for the Jews and for the New Testament church today, this church specifically, this, this attitude is to see to it that you receive the blessings of God and, and, and you, you accept that divine mission and, and you are a light to the nations. But instead of being a light, there were those and we find what we have, many Jews, many churches today, believe that God had created the Gentiles as a fuel for hell. Now, what we need to understand is that being separated from Christ is to be fuel for hell. And anyone outside of Christ is indeed separated from him so that we look for is, is not only to be joined with Christ, but to see to it that others are in Christ. Um, the section here that we began, you know, it begins with therefore, and you know, you'll hear the preacher say, well, you look what it's there for, right? But that passage, which if I don't expect you to remember months and months ago, whenever I said that this first 10 verses of chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, what Paul's doing is he's pointing them back to all of this in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And he's indicating that this next, uh, these next thoughts are just very simply this regarding this new identity of these Gentile Christians. It is built on what Christ has done to give them life in eternal blessings as described in those verses. It's as if Paul is calling them to be so grateful for their deliverance from the old situation that they were in that they come to appreciate and appreciate fully their new situation of a union with all believers. Nothing more possibly inspires gratitude in a saved sinner than to look at the pit from which he came from. The issue, as Paul says repeatedly, and he says more often obviously than just here, the issue is not a mark of the flesh. The issue is Christ. It matters not the mark because if you have not repented, you are alienated socially and spiritually. And that first alienation, as he gets into this, was social. Paul calls the readers Gentiles in the flesh in order to emphasize the physical, external nature of the distinction. And he calls on them to remember who they were. Remember who you were before coming to Christ. As far as the Jews were concerned, they were outcasts, right? They were outcasts. Um, and to call them the uncircumcision, that was more than just name-calling. Again, we go back to, it was 
to be profane. Because Gentiles didn't have that physical mark of circumcision to set them apart as the people of God, many Jews had, in, they were inferior as far as they were concerned. And in fact, they of no concern to God. God doesn't care about you, was the attitude. Paul carries, of course, a tone of disdain for this kind of hatred that the Jews had. It's evidenced in his words of choice there to describe the Jews. It's quick to say, hey, this is done by human hands. This is not done by God. It's external. It means nothing spiritually. You see, this is not a mark of personal relationship to God for Jews or anyone else now, he states. In Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, starting in, in verse 25, he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. Have written, have the written code and circumcision but break the law for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from God which by the way we read that and we don't realize just how significant and painful that would have been for a Jew to hear um that would have troubled them significantly. Paul makes a lot of this, a lot of this issue. Any separation is physical. Spiritual is the key, and this is what we look at. So the spiritual alienation is far more serious. Look at verse 12, and if, and if you key in there in verse 12, this having no hope and without God in the world. This is spiritual misery. And if you don't belong to God, the reality is that you're Christless. There's no hope. There's no other salvation. This is the shape that the Gentiles are in. They can create all the gods they like, but there remains no hope for them. There's no hope for a savior or deliverer outside of Christ. The Gentile history without purpose, without plan, nothing except judgment in hell outside of Christ, right? A God that they were previously unaware of which, by the way, there's thousands of people groups that are still like this today. Pagan gods being really nothing but extension of pagans, pagan man's imagination. Pagan gods are made of the image of man, right? God had a plan for them. We know this, but at that time there wasn't any awareness of that. The Gentiles also were alienated because they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. God had made his chosen people into a theocracy, right? God was king. Of course, what did they want? Well, they wanted a king like the other nations, but God was their king. He gave them covenants. He gave them law. He gave them priesthood. He gave them guidance. He gave them everything. If the Gentiles accepted the true God, they too could have been a part of that blessed nation, but rejected God thus outside of the dominion of God. Also, to be spiritually alienated, being outside of the covenant of God. See, the true marks are not physical, right? The true marks are not physical, but they are faith and obedience for the one who experiences the fulfillment of the covenant. Also, to be alienated from God is, is having no hope. If you have no Christ, you have no commonwealth, you have no covenant, you have no hope. True hope found on true promise, on confidence in someone who can perform what he promises, namely Jesus Christ. Hope, profound blessing, gives meaning security to life. True hope is to know that you have blessed eternity with God. As for Israel, they were able to have complete hope in God's promises because God has every resource at his disposal, right? He cannot lie. They had God promise, God's promises and they knew that he was able, he was trustworthy to fill these. A failure to hope in the promises is due to my unfaithfulness, certainly not God's. But again, Gentiles, they didn't previously, they didn't have the promises and therefore didn't have the hope. So you're without God in the world, then what are you? Well, you're spiritually alienated. It isn't 
that those that are lost are intellectual atheists. They may call themselves that, but if people don't believe in a major false god or even a minor pagan god, what do they do? They invent one. And 90% of the time, that is just simply themselves, right? The problem had not been lack of a god. It was lack of a true god. Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a good friend who is an Alcoholics Anonymous. He's been in it for years. He's been sober for years. He still attends AA. And, uh, and, and he says that in AA, they, um, they tell you to believe in a higher power. Now, they don't really specify this higher power. They tell you you need to believe in a higher power. And part of what he does in Alcoholics Anonymous is he shares with folks, that's his ministry, who, who and what that higher power actually is and tells them that until you see this higher power, I mean, believing in something bigger than you, right? There's a lot of things bigger than you. This is to believe in the one true and living God. And he tells them, if you don't do this, you'll, be, you'll end up right back where you were. This is the higher power. And then he tells them the gospel. And we realize that any higher power is worthless if we're not talking about the God of the Bible. So it is our job. It's like it's Dave's job in AA. It's our job here. The nation of Israel failed at it, right? For many reasons. But it's our job to take the truth and the hope to the people who are without it. So peace with God and His people. In this larger section of the passage, verses 13 through 17, it's clear here that, you know, Jesus alone is our peace. There is no other source. What laws, ordinances, ceremonies, sacrifices, good deeds, what all those things could not do to make peace between God and man, Jesus did. Because I can do all that and I cannot make peace with God myself. Why? Because I'm still sinful. This is what Jesus did. Those things could neither bring men into harmony with God or each other. And they weren't intended to, right? They weren't intended to. We say this all the time that all these laws, all these things were there to point them, right? To point them to the need for a Savior. Furthermore, you know, as we, as we think about this and we go out in the world and we hear things from people, you know, you and God don't have an understanding, you know? For people say, you know, me and God, we got an understanding. No, you don't. Jesus isn't your homeboy and all this kind of stuff, okay? He's not going to see things my way, you know. That, it, that's not the way that this rolls, right? In the sacrifice of himself on the cross, Christ accomplished this, and now it is for me to obey him. Why won't my relationship with this person work? Why won't my marriage work? Why is there no unity in my life? Why am I not getting along with this person at church? Or why is my job doing this and I'm having trouble with this person? Why am I, ultimately, why am I not at peace with God? Because I'm not trusting Christ as I ought. We said that sin it's the cause of conflict. Sin is the cause of division. It is the enemy of peace. It's the enemy of harmony. You see the impossibility of peace. It's a main ingredient in wickedness. Sin is selfishness. And selfishness at its core is divisive. It's disruptive. We can't always have what we want without infringing on what someone else wants or needs, right? I can't have my own way without infringing on someone else's way. That's why I said, and I'll say it again, you know, we need to be looking out for what each other wants. I need to be looking out for what you want. You need to be looking out for what your brother and sister wants. You know, instead of saying things like, man, I, I tell you what, I can't wait till we get a bigger building and we don't have to listen to the kids scream because we'll put more distance between us and the children. Well, instead of doing that and saying that, what I need to be saying is, how can I help this wonderful problem that we have, by the way, which it is a glorious problem to have. Peace enters in when self dies, and the only place self dies is at the foot of the cross, right? In the context of this passage, we got a couple groups here. We got the Jews, we got the Gentiles, and knowing that Jesus himself became peace for those who trust in him, we know that his peace is not temporary, that it is indeed permanent. As a matter of fact, he made the two groups, the Jews, who are called near here, and the Gentiles, who were 
far off and made them into one, breaking down the barrier that was between them. Now, this is so deep that as far as religion goes, and we can spend a lot of time here, we're not, but to, to kind of oversimplify this, this is deep enough that as far as, as Jews are concerned, and, and, and being that, that Jews and Gentiles no longer being distinct after they're saved, right? There's not to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is a big point. And this is a big point that they would have a very difficult time with. But what we have to understand is, yes, we have Jews today, right? We have Judaism today. But this is serious because what we have to understand is that since 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, true religious Judaism, it ceased to exist. It does not exist anymore since the temple was destroyed. Because with the temple being destroyed, not only was the place of sacrifice destroyed, but all the genealogical records were destroyed. All the priestly lineage was destroyed. This means a lot. There's a lot of implications here. As if Jesus just didn't say it, he just went ahead and wiped it out physically. I mean, he just didn't have to say, okay, I've died, I've rose from the dead, now here I am, now you are to worship me. He went ahead and just wiped it out. He took everything that was set up before, and, and he took that, and he completed it, right, in himself. And then he said, okay, this is what we're doing now. This is the new covenant. And then destroyed the temple. What's this mean? Well, it means there's no more priests, right? It means that now we have... But one high priest, Jesus, and anyone that calls themselves a priest, if Josh or I, we get up and we say, well, we're, we've declared ourselves a priest now. Well, anyone that calls themselves a priest either is a simple liar or they're a little nuts or more likely they just don't understand very simple basic theology of the New Testament, which is most likely. So now, for those of us who are in Christ... The only identity that really matters is our identity in Him. You know, people identify if you go to school, right? You identify as a, a jock. They have emos now. I don't even really know what that is. You have, you have all these different little groups in school, right? And everybody, you feel like you go to school and you have to identify in one of those groups. And you have to identify in one of those groups or you're out here somewhere. And of course... Five minutes after you graduate from high school, none of that even matters anymore, right? But you have to identify as something at work. You know, you get into a clique at work or something like that. That's of no matter. What's important is that we identify in Christ, that we are, as it says, as Paul says over and over in Ephesians, that we are in Christ. And so now... Whenever this happens, regardless of where we come from, regardless of whether you're in high school and you're a we call them hoods, whether you're a hood or a jock or a, or whatever, you're one of those 900 different things. Now all of this is torn down, right? And so more importantly, now there's no Jewish Christianity. There's no Gentile Christianity. There's no black Christianity or white Christianity. There's no free. There's no slave. There's Christianity, period. The Lord has but one church. And this unifies us, and it's a unity that cannot be broken. And so when you see in the passage the barrier of the dividing wall, what's being alluded to there is the separation of the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Between that court and the court of the Israelites, there was a sign. And I don't know exactly what the sign says. I wasn't there. I've never seen the sign, obviously, but it, I'm going to paraphrase basically what that said and what it meant. No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It's basically what it said. That physical barrier illustrated something much bigger <laughs> a hostility, a hatred that separated those groups. God originally separated these two groups for a, for a very important reason that Israel was very disobedient in. We talked about all that. I'm not going to recap all that, but the fact was that now God was bringing these groups together. That separation, that initial separation had a purpose, and that purpose was the redeeming of both groups 
not for saving the Israelites and using the Gentiles as fuel for hell. The fact that there was a court of the Gentiles at all showed something. It showed that God wanted the Jews and the Gentiles to interact so that salvation would eventually come to the Gentiles and now the barrier is broke down and they would be brought near and into the fold. When Christ died on the cross, He abolished forever every barrier between man and God and then His fellow man. Look at the Jews and the Gentiles, and you look at them, one of the greatest barriers was that ceremonial law, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, all the feasts, the sacrifices, the offerings, the laws of cleanliness and purification, and all other such distinctive outward commandments for the unique separation of Israel from the nations. All of that was abolished. And now, living by the Spirit, we're going to do some things, right? You think of all the cultural issues here before Christ, these groups couldn't even, they couldn't eat together. You've got restricted foods, right? You've got required washings. You've got ceremonial contamination. Now they could eat anything with anyone. Today, we have uh, the hot thing in the, in the seminaries and among pastors that they're talking about now is social justice and racism. It's a very hot theological discussion. Um, and, and what, and, and the, I think a lot of that discussion rests upon, does the gospel alone fix this? Well, I can tell you this, okay? I'm not really that bright. But whenever I look at the Jews and the Gentiles and what God did with the Jews and the Gentiles, if the gospel will fix that, the gospel will fix the social justice problem that we're talking about now. Before Christ... They couldn't worship together. A Gentile couldn't fully worship in the Jewish temple because they couldn't only go so far. And a Jew certainly wouldn't be caught dead in a pagan temple. In Christ, now there is worship together, needing no temple, no other sacred place to sanctify it. The two are one. Peace is established. This occurs in Christ. But still, while the hostility between men is dropped in Christ. More importantly, our hostility with God is dropped in Christ. See, that happens first, right? Because of Christ, the hostility that we have between us and God, because of Christ, that is dropped. Christ paid the price of death, which God required, and then satisfied that divine justice, Christ becoming the curse for us. So, we should take note of that fact, right? That, man, we can't even, I can't even reconcile myself to fellow man, right? We can't even reconcile ourselves to each other. How in the world am I going to reconcile myself to a holy God? Apart from Christ, I am helpless. I am sinful. I am an enemy of God. There was a Scottish commentator that said this. He said, The cross which slew Jesus slew also the hostility between man and God. His death was the death of that animosity. And we can talk about how Christ unifies us. We can talk about how Christ unifies the church. But none of that really matters if we're still lost and headed for hell, if we're not reconciled first to God. The cross is God's answer to Judaizing. The cross is God's answer to racial discrimination. It's the answer to segregation. It's the answer to bigotry. It's the answer to war. It's the answer to your marriage. It's, and every other cause of human strife. But again, what's more important than all that is the fact that we have access to God through our Lord and Savior now. And now we're born again to this living hope. Verse 18, again, for through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, I say it a lot. I've probably said this a million times. It's not so simply nice to have Jesus. And you'll hear people say that. It's, it's nice to have Jesus. It's nice that Jesus is in my life. It's, it's nice to have Jesus... We have to understand it's necessary, right? That this is necessary. It's not simply nice. It's not like when the, the missionary goes and is, and is trying over and over and over to, to help these, these people that, that have never heard the gospel to understand the gospel. And then they, they, they hear the gospel and they say, 
and, and say they're in a tribe or something, they have all these, these idols that they worship and they say, oh, now I have Jesus too and I can set Jesus next to my idols and the missionary just, you know, hands in the, in the face and saying, we got to start over, right? No, it's necessary. Christ and Christ alone because when we have Christ, we have access by the Spirit to the Father. The resources of the entire Trinity at that time. Father, Son, Spirit. The resources of the Trinity are ours the moment we trust Christ. And the word that is translated access is used very carefully in the New Testament because in each instance that it's used, what it's referring to is it's referring to the believer's access to God. In ancient times, uh, a, a word, this word was used to describe the court official that would take people to the king. It would be the court official that he was presenting people to the king. They were the ones giving access to the monarch. So the term carries the idea of no possession of any access in our own right, but being granted the right. Granted the right to come to God with boldness. Why? Knowing I'm going to be welcome because this person has brought me. If I come on my own, there's no telling what may happen. Right? It's only through the Savior's shedding of His blood in the sacrificial death on the cross and by faith in Him that we have union in the Holy Spirit then and have access to the Father. We can't come on our own. Right? If we did that, it's not that, well, I wonder what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen, right? It's the wrath of God. The Spirit then is at work drawing people, Gentile, Jew, barbarian, Greek, the work of Christ, the establishment of His church, then reaching all men. In John 10, Jesus spoke of Himself as both the good shepherd and the door to the sheepfold, right? Now, they would have understood this. They would have understood this in that, you know, Palestinian shepherds, they would have, you know, sort of a pen there or whatever they had in the evening and the shepherd would, would act as the door, right? The shepherd would there act as the door in this fence of whatever was built, wood, stone, uh, mud, whatever this was, the sheep being on the inside, he would count them, he would lay across that opening there in the fence and anything that would come in, well, it's got to get through me, Right? This is Christ. This is Christ and the only access into the presence of God, the only door into the sheepfold of His kingdom is through His Son. It's wonderful access. It's glorious access that cannot be taken from us. And just as Christ is the Son of God, we too, we can become His sons. We're adopted when we trust Him. We're adopted into the fold. We share in the inheritance. And those who were once socially, spiritually alienated are now in Christ, united with God, united with each other. Because you have Christ, you have peace. Access in that one spirit, the Father, as He states. You have an introducer, if you will, that gives you that access. You have the one who presents you to the heavenly throne of God. And you can come to Him. You can come to God as your Father, not simply because you just want to, but because you are brought there by Christ. You come to Him as your Father. Now He doesn't judge you. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't cast wrath on you any longer. Why? Because you are in Christ. Even then, whenever you do fail, His discipline is an act of love, right? His, his discipline being an act of love given to cleanse, to restore His children to purity and the spiritual richness that He intends for them. So, being brought near, it's what we have to have. Being brought near. It's not an external, it's not a dispensational, it's not a national ceremonial nearness. This is the spiritual intimacy of a real, actual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the root cause of all the strife, all the discord, all the antagonism, the hate, the war, the disunity, all of that, sin. And the only way for division to be removed is if the sin is removed. Christ accomplished that, right? Christ accomplished that with His blood, trust in that. We trust in His atoning work and then we are free from this sin, but we have to obey Him, right? We have to follow Him. We have to trust Him. Penalty then washed away. Now, either you're currently 
alienated from Christ, or you were at one time in the past. If you've been brought near to God, praise God. Praise God that you are one of His and that you are now absolutely resolved to serve Him, unified alongside your church family. If you've not been brought near to Him, then see that Christ is the Savior. He is the Lord. And you're not holy. And He is. And He will make you holy. That we can't do this. He has reconciled all things to the Father. But you must trust and repent. It's not for us to be alienated. It's for us to be brought near. Let's pray. Again, Father, we are thankful. First and foremost, Father, I just pray that as we read these words, when we read our Bibles, whenever we read passages like this, that we would worship You, not just in general, but worship You in the sense that all of this has been torn down in Christ. All the barriers, all the barricades, it has all been torn down in Christ. And that as we would follow Him, obey Him, trust Him, live for Him, that, Father, You are loving us, regardless of the current difficulties that we might have. And, Father, we know that this church has gone through a season of difficulty. But, Father, You are, you are using that for our good. You are using that for our development, our sanctification in You. Help us to see that. But, Father, as we read passages like this, that we know that we are brought near. Regardless of what, we don't let our, our environment, our, our outward circumstances define uh, what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our lives, but that, Father, you uh, have brought us near. You love us. And, Father, we have hope. We have hope in Christ, a true and living hope of the inheritance that we are looking forward to in you. Father, we thank you. We praise you for this. And, Father, we thank you for those words in Christ. And Father, may we live in Christ, Lord. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Ben Hartwig's sermon titled, Unity in Christ. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.